Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show, and today we're going to be talking about relationships and how we can make them better, whether they're relationships between ourselves and our family, our friends, or even people whom we may find rather challenging. My guest today is Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen is a psychologist and has written and taught about the essential inner skills of personal well-being, psychological growth, and contemplative practice, as well as about relationships, family life, and raising children. Dr. Hansen is the author of several best-selling books on these topics, including the book we're going to be discussing today, Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. Rick Hansen is a senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley and has been invited to speak at NASA as well as Oxford, Harvard, Stanford, and other major universities. Dr. Hansen offers online classes and programs as well as a free online weekly meditation program. He also has his own podcast, Being Well, with his son, Forrest Hansen. You can find out more about Rick Hansen at his website, rickhansen.net. Hansen is H-A-N-S-O-N, rickhansen.net. You can also follow him on social media, on Instagram or Facebook. He's at Rick Hansen, PhD. And again, his podcast is Being Well with Forrest Hansen and Dr. Rick Hansen. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour, Rick Hansen. I'm just delighted that you could join me again today on the Yoga Hour. Laurel, it's always a pleasure. I mean, this is what, our third, fourth, or fifth conversation? Somewhere in there, right? Exactly. Um, I think about, you know, Native people sometimes who have numbers one, two, three, and many. So I think we're in the many category by now. That's, <laughs> That's great. right. That's exactly. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So before we dive into our dialogue about how we can foster healthy and fulfilling relationships, let's start, as we mean to go on, let's start with a moment of being right here, right now, a moment of contemplation. So let's just begin right where we are, whatever we're doing, just feeling our bodies in space, just noticing, noticing our bodies and particularly paying attention to any surfaces that support our weight. Where are our feet? What part of our weight might be supported in a chair? And now let's turn our attention to the breath and just notice as we take a fully conscious breath, the next inhale and exhale. The next inhale, just noticing how the chest moves and the exhale, noticing how it returns to resting. 
the next in-breath, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And the next out-breath, feeling how it has been warmed as it passes through our body. And just staying with the breath, here's something to contemplate from Yogacharya O'Brien from her online program, Dharma 365. She writes, Kindness is the way we enter the family of all beings. It is how we truly experience belonging. This is why serving others is so satisfying. When we do, we enter the sanctuary of belonging. When we stop leaving others out of the circle of love and kindness, we ourselves come into right relationship with life. We can't hold others out without banishing ourselves. We cannot deprive others of kindness and still truly experience it ourselves. When the eyes of our heart are opened, we see our common humanity, our imperfection, our fallibility, and most importantly, the promise of our common divinity. Once again, Rick Hansen, welcome back to the Yoga Hour. Again, this is just such a fantastic book, Making Great Relationships. I really appreciate it. You've packed it with so much fantastic information, useful and accessible information about how people can improve their relationships. I thought I would start by quoting what you write at the uh, introduction of your book. You write, most of our joys and most of our sorrows come from our connections with other people. Just about everyone wants to be in healthy, fulfilling relationships. But how to actually do this at home and at work, with friends and relatives, with people you like, and perhaps some you don't. So your prior books have focused on neuroscience, psychology, and spirituality, and contemplation. Why did you want the focus of this book to be about relationships? I felt it was about time. <laughs> book number seven. <laughs> Better get to it eventually, right? That's <laughs> part of it. And uh, I think another part of it is that um, these days in particular, partly I'm speaking as an American, so I'm kind of very aware of America, but in the world altogether, uh, through greater interconnections and also the tensions and conflicts sometimes that come with that, uh, and a growing recognition, frankly, of the need to come together at the scale of the whole human tribe to make a better world in the face of systemic concentrations of wealth and power that, that are rooted in injustice and cause so much preventable suffering. So for all those reasons, including in America, coming out of a plague, uh, reconnecting with others, um, you were talking with me a bit about that just before we began the recording here. Um, it, You know, in the conflicts, like the fever swamp of political issues these days, it just seemed for all those reasons, it was time to really focus on the how. And, 
as someone who likes abstractions, big ideas, blah, blah, there's something so humbling about how. The how humbles us because that's where the rubber meets the road. And I think of the great teachers, um, certainly the Buddha, which is the tradition I'm most familiar with, um, which for me is situated in my personal practice fundamentally in a, in a sense of the transcendental ground of all uh, that you and I share. Um, the Buddha was interested in what is true, but he was really interested in what worked. The pragmatism, the how, mm -hmm. it brings it down to earth. And I've also been a couples counselor uh, for, and a family counselor and a business consultant too. And I basically wanted to answer the question in all kinds of different situations. What, can, what do I do next? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What would help? What would stop hurting? What can I think and I say? What can I do with my mind or my mouth next? that would make things better. And I wanted to give people 50 really, really, really short chapters that answer that question. What can I do next to make things better? Right. Our team here at the Yoga Hour, I, I just wanted to mention that the whole team was really excited to feature your new book because we, we really talked about, when we talk about guests that we want to invite on the show, what, what should we be talking about now? And this topic of relationships, topic of friendships, seems like it's so critical. As you mentioned, the divisions that we have in our society, so many people that perhaps are more difficult, we find difficult to get along with. What are those skills? And I did want to echo just what you said, which is what makes your book so accessible is, again, it's 50 short chapters. These are very short. They're not meant necessarily to, you know, read like cover to cover, though you certainly can, but you can dip into it depending on what area you really want to focus. And each one is about a skill. And it's so it makes it so practical and so useful for us to build our skills to be able to to have great relationships, to make great relationships, as you said in the title. Go ahead. Yeah, just that was just something? that notion of making. You know, I thought about do I put that word making? I mean, at one level, it almost sounds mechanistic and um, to use a loaded generalization here, sort of masculine. And I thought, huh. And yet, to me, it's so important to emphasize the empowerment. And often we're dead in the water in our relationships. We're stuck, or they're okay, but they're stagnant or they're constrained, they're bounded, including by the weight of things unsaid, because on any given day, sometimes it just felt like a bad idea to say them. And yet, the weight gradually accumulates, right? Right. Um, and so for for me, it's it it's it's wonderful to claim the power that we do have to shape our relationships, including how they affect us personally, even if those other people don't change. And there are a lot of chapters about maximizing your odds for influencing them effectively and morally to change for the better um, in ways that will affect you, of course. Um, but beyond all that, even if they, they don't change, there's so much you can do yourself in terms right. of making the relationship great for you. And right. I just love that, on that sense. And to emphasize the power, which also means responsibility. Because <laughs> if we have the power, that means we have responsibility for how do we use <laughs> yes, that power. Right. And we can't right. just keep blaming others if we don't claim the power that we actually do have skillfully yeah. and then i lay out a path that starts on the inside and gradually moves outside in terms of effective ways uh, of influencing your relationships for the better right 
as a physician, I am very aware of the significant number of scientific studies that show that loneliness is yeah. a, a very large risk factor for poor health and for a shorter lifespan. Yeah. So we definitely know that having relationships is important for our health. You talk in the book about the benefits of putting in the effort to improve our relationships. So what are some of those benefits that we like? Why should we <laughs> why should we be doing this? It, well, it's really interesting. Like uh, <clears throat> they're, they're different whys. You know, let's start with the living longer why. As you know, that's a good reason, as you probably well know, one of the, the most robust findings around uh, the relationship between lifestyle factors and longevity is the contribution to living longer and living healthier. So you, you expand your health span, not just your lifespan, uh, by having meaningful, significant, you know, positive relationships in your life. Now, it's a little bit circular because people who tend to be healthier might have more energy for relationships, but there's an independent causal thrust that comes from um, having good relationships for the lifespan. I mean, that's one finding. In terms of the health span, one of the real interesting findings as well is the ways in which heartfelt experiences have an independent contribution to reducing inflammatory processes in the body. Mm. And I still remember the opening sentence of this review article for the general public in Science Magazine, kind of the gold standard along with nature for you know scientific publications in the English-speaking world. The opening line was, most of us will die from inflammation one way or another in terms of end stage, like pneumonia end stage or other things, uh, inflammatory conditions in the cardiovascular system. So there's something about lovingness, kindness, happiness, pa receiving and giving, you know, and both flowing in and flowing out that, it, that affects us right there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you just think about the benefits of having support. You know, as you get older, it's good to have some people who can go with you to the doctor, mm -hmm. right? Some people who can visit you in the hospital, some people who can remind you to take your darn vitamins and quit drinking so much wine and, you know, put less cream in your coffee. <laughs> wait, wait, I'm channeling my wife here or something. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the cream and the coffee and the vitamins. Um, anyway, yeah, and then of course along the way, there's so much evidence too that um, uh, relationships affect our health through into, you know, through uh, sort of secondary pathways like lowering stress, uh, improving mood, and giving us a more of a sense of participation in life. You know, someone to go for a walk with you, someone to cook with you, someone to go to church together, someone to chant Om together with you. All of that is just incredibly beneficial for us. I mean, I'm a super introvert. Now, I, I, I take that back. I'm a very autonomous, you know, determined person who's naturally, I'm, I'm like a friendly introvert. Relationships are not everything. And there's a range. Some people, their whole life is about the relationships. Other people, like me, life is about relationships and other things too. But even for a relatively introverted, you know, self-determined, you know, perfectly happy with solitude, which is not loneliness kind of person as myself and others like me, relationships still are enormously important. Think about what we ruminate about, what grinds away at us, or that ache in our heart. It's almost always about relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, that's sure true. been true in my life. Yeah. So your book has five sections, and the first section is titled Befriend Yourself, which mm -hmm. is a great place to start. And the first yeah. chapter is was titled Be Loyal 
to yourself. Why did you begin the book with a focus on befriending ourselves and being loyal to ourselves? Why is that important? Um, both in its own right and because it's the necessary basis for making use of the rest of the book. In other words, it's being on your own side in some sense, being for yourself, being loyal to yourself, regarding yourself as someone whose who's suffering and happiness matters, mm -hmm. right? If you don't have that in place, it's like not having the pilot light going in your furnace or your water heater. You can give it all the gas you want, but there's no pilot light. And mm -hmm. one of the early lessons for me as a young therapist was to realize, to my surprise, that probably about half the people I saw, the majority women who tend to you know, use therapy more than men, hello, men, you know, wake <laughs> up. You need therapy more than they do in many cases. But anyway, <laughs> moving right along here, uh, I found that they weren't on their own side. They cared for others. They were loyal to others. They wanted to nurture others. The suffering of others mattered. But themselves, they were back of the line. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that that are obvious in socialization of girls and women and ongoing structural forces. Um, that said, it's so important to feel that it's fair that it's compassionate and that it's muscular to be on your own side. And so the, these are the three ways to deepen your sense of loyalty yourself. First of all, to realize that it's okay, it's fair. And it, frankly, it's good for others. If you care about others, uh, put your own oxygen mask on first, right, as the airlines say. Second, you can have compassion for yourself in addition to compassion for others. You know, you can that, bring that kind of tender, caring, supportive, empathic recognition of how life is hard for you. You can bring that to yourself. That's kind of a heartfelt aspect alongside the more principled cognitive recognition of the fairness of it all. Uh, and then third, moxie. Moxie is a very underrated psychological attribute, uh, to, you know, where you're, you just have a kind of rumph. Yeah, on your own behalf, much as you would have for a friend. You would bring a kind of muscularity, a kind of determination, uh, a, a gravity, a seriousness to supporting your friend or your family member, your child, your dog, uh, whatever, dealing with some group of people you care about who've been targeted for injustices. Um, you would, uh, <laughs> there, you know, there'd be a forcefulness about it. Well, why yeah. not bring that same kind of strength to yourself too? So those are three things that I go through how to develop. And uh, in that first chapter, and including the broad principle of how to internalize the beneficial experiences we're having to actually change your brain mm -hmm. so that it, more and more you're hardwiring those qualities in you and you're developing the trait uh, over mm -hmm. time of things like self-compassion or being on your own side. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that you write about in the book, you say, you know, some of the barriers to loyalty to ourselves are obvious, but I do want to touch on one, which is feeling like somehow that's being selfish. Yeah. If I'm loyal to myself, that that means that I'm selfish. So would you comment on that? Because I think that's yeah. a big barrier to people actually wanting to, to become loyal to themselves. Yeah, that goes to, in effect, the first of the three things I was saying, uh, which is you know, we absorb a lot of shoulds, rules, and beliefs, and yet when we step back from them, we just think, what? And one way to explore this is to imagine that you're talking with a friend, and your friend is, you know, is doing okay, but not great. Your friend is maybe uh, um, 
you know, struggling with something. And uh, you can see that your friend is, is being not treated well maybe by somebody in her life, say a, someone who identifies as a woman. And um, then your friend says to you, oh, but, you know, if I, like, take time for myself in the day, you know, if, I'm, if I carve out some time for myself in the day, I'm just being selfish. You would say to your friend, oh, wait a minute, your husband carves out time for himself. You know, your, your other people carve out time for themselves. Do you think they're being selfish? Well, I don't know. Well, why are you, why, why is it selfish for you to, to do it then? You know, and uh, you're not harming them. Also, you have rights and needs as well. Uh, and also, it's a general principle of fairness. Rules for the, you know, you are rules for them. Rights for them are rights for you. Right? And so, I mean, I think it's really quite helpful to challenge some of our internalized beliefs and to step back and, and ask yourself, wow, how did, why did I start to believe that? And you start to realize society has sold me a bill of goods. You know, society has exploited the unpaid effort and labor of women for countless generations, you know, and it's not fair. It's not right. When I would see women in my practice as a practicing physician, it was very common that uh, they would come in with fatigue and malaise. I'm tired and I don't feel well. And yeah. this is one of the things I would talk to them about after, of course, doing a physical exam, checking their labs. Yeah. 99 times out of 100, all that's fine. And so it really is a question of, well, you know, what is, are they taking care of themselves? And I would talk to them about uh, the well analogy. It's like you keep, you know, you're taking all of this water out of the well for everybody else. Well, it's going to run dry. You have to put something back in there or yeah. there's, or there, or you're not going to be able to give water anymore. I mean, there's yeah. not going to be anything left. So, Yeah. And if I could also say this part, um, there is a place for the rational cognitive, you know, analysis of your own beliefs and kind of pushing back against them. There's a lot of evidence for, for that approach being helpful. But underneath that often is something much deeper, which is understandable that when a, a person, and it doesn't, it's not always a girl or a, a woman, it could be someone who comes out of a culture that's very um, much about the collective and very suppressing of uh, individual needs, uh, which sometimes has to do with a religious upbringing. Um, as well. For whatever reason, a person as a child and then moving into young adulthood uh, either sees or experiences punishments of various kinds for daring to assert oneself or daring to assert one's own needs. And so then there becomes understandably an internalization of that, okay. of a fear of, um, you know, in the Japanese proverb, being the nail that stands out and, is get, and gets hammered down. And so part of the path is to become more and more aware of that early, that emotional learning, which has, you know, uh, understandably led a person to sort of fear uh, and expect, you know, those painful experiences yeah. and then gradually work with that, you know, through healing those old experiences and uh, recognizing that today you're in a different situation, yeah. probably. Today, you could afford to be that nail that will stand out because you're not going to get hammered down now. Mm -hmm. And if you're with people who hammer you down, that's where one of my later chapters, Resize the Relationship, you know, um, 
really comes in. Another one is don't be bullied, uh, mm -hmm. you know, comes in as well. Uh, yeah. I'm a staunch advocate for people who've been systemically mistreated, you know, and again, I'm, <laughs> as a major group, probably arguably the group that's been most systemically mistreated throughout the history of the human species is girls and women. Mm -hmm. It's great to have you as an advocate. <laughs> So the second section of your book is titled Warm the Heart, and yeah. some chapters deal with our relationships with people who may be difficult for us. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we see this in society, the polarization over the last, I don't know how long, 10, 20 years has just gone th through the roof yeah. so that there's become an intolerance of even conversation with people who have a different set of views from our own. And we tend to get triggered into anger or fear. Um, however, you and I both come out of spiritual traditions that really arise from this idea of oneness. You know, mm -hmm. in both yoga and Buddhism, there's a sense that we're really there, we're all one. Yeah. Um, so in the introduction to your book, you offer a teaching story about the elder who was asked why she was so happy and wise. And in chapter 12, you return to this theme, you talk about feeding the wolf of love. So would you share that story with our listeners? Oh, sure. Well, it's a it's a parable. And to, to name something that is a little controversial about it, uh, Billy Graham, in the 1930s in America is a major evangelical uh, teacher preacher. Um, he basically made up a story that he glamorized by attributing it to a Cherokee Native American mm -hmm. tribe. So he was sort of, you know, in a way, you know, a kind of colonizing of, of that culture. So the story itself is a little problematic in its origins, but you can take it at face value. So with that, you know, statement going in, just judge it on its own right. And you can find parables like this in other traditions. Uh, the way I heard it broadly was that a woman was asked toward the end of her life, you know, grandmother, how did you become so wise? How did you become so happy, so loved, and so successful? What did you do? So right there we have the how question again, the humility of how. And she paused and reflected and said, you know, I think it's because when I was once young like you, I realized two things. First, I realized that in my heart were two wolves, one of love and one of hate. And second, most importantly, I realized that everything depended upon which one I fed each day. Boom. So you can really feel the weight of that. We can't hate the wolf of hate. We all have those capacities. And there's a place with the wolf of hate, you know, or aspects of it under certain conditions. You, know, you need to be fiery and intense to protect your children or things like that. But on the whole, uh, the human tribe is very vulnerable to the activation of the wolf of hate, particularly based on a sense of grievance and injury by others, which then authoritarian demagogues, as we've seen in America recently, just totally play on. Much like the human species is vulnerable to the appeal of sweet carbohydrates because we could not store food, <laughs> right? In the Serengeti Plains, we're very vulnerable to the appeal by authoritarian leaders to a sense of grievance and harm and then payback. So be careful about that wolf of hate. But really, the thing to do is to feed the wolf pack of love, broadly defined, and other qualities we want to cultivate. And, you know, with the growing 
science now of positive neuroplasticity, we can appreciate increasingly the biological impact of what the great teachers have always said, that where your mind dwells becomes increasingly what dwells within you, mm -hmm. for better or worse. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, what qualities are you feeding? Now this means that you can experience so-called negative emotions. You can be upset about things, you can be mad, uh, hurt, but if you're aware of it with mindful spaciousness, you're not feeding it. You're actually calming it because you're relating it to the undisturbedness, uh, nature of awareness, or maybe you're rested in something that feels divine even, you know, in a yoga kind of sense of union. And in that context, then you're being with your anger, your hurt, your trauma, your upset. So it's, it's okay to experience what we experience. Just experiencing it doesn't necessarily feed it if we experience it in that, in the spaciousness of, um, on, you know, present, present, uh, moment of moment to moment awareness. Mm -hmm. So all that said, uh, what's striking is to realize that you can grow the muscle of your heart, uh, the emotional heart, in effect, the metaphoric heart. And it's probably good for your actual physical cardiovascular <laughs> system as well, you know, That's so right. to do yeah. cultivation practices that are very central, certainly in the uh, early Buddhism, uh, actually later as well, certainly through Tibetan, um, probably in the yoga traditions as well, where you just kind of deliberately call to mind those you experience compassion for, kindness for, you're happy for them. It's, I think it's also really important to look for ways to take in the good of feeling cared about by others, because it's a two-way street. Love flowing in and love flowing out is love either way, and it feeds us and protects us whether it's flowing in or flowing out. So yeah, that's uh, feed the wolf of love. Mm. Oh, lovely. As a reminder to our listeners today, on the Yoga Hour, my guest is psychologist, meditation teacher, and author of the book we're discussing today, Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. And it's Dr. Rick Hansen. You can find out more about him, his books, and his programs on his website, rickhansen.net. We will have his link uh, on our webpage at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. So Rick, getting back to the book, part three of the book is titled Be at Peace with Others. And I was particularly struck by the chapter called Take It Less Personally. You give an example of getting tipped out of a canoe in two different scenarios that I thought was very useful. So would you share that, oh, that, sure. uh, that illustration with our listeners and talk about how the two scenarios really can result in different ways that we would interpret this experience. Yeah, you bet. So here too, I have updated a parable from Chung Su, a Taoist teacher, um, and uh, or an amalgam of Taoist teachers, you know, several thousand years ago. In any case, here's the story. So you imagine this. So scenario one, you decide to get together with your dear friend, maybe your romantic partner, you're going to go to the river, nice sunny Sunday, and sit in a canoe, have a picnic lunch. You bring your grandmother's silverware, special. You get all dressed up. Everything's great. It's all wonderful. Suddenly, boom, there's a loud thump on the side of your canoe, and you get dumped into the river. You come up sputtering. You know, you're 
clothes are ruined, your hair's wrecked. Grandma Silver, it's bottom of the river, it's gone. And what do you see? You see a couple of teenagers with snorkels and fins are laughing and laughing because they've snuck up on you in the canoe and tipped you over. Whoa, how do you feel? All right, now, second scenario, everything's the same. The canoe, the river, the Sunday, your friend, grandmother silver, everything's wonderful, and the loud thump, boom, on the side of your canoe, tips you over. Boom, you come up sputtering. It's all the same. Everything's the same. You're wet, you're cold, your hair's ruined, grandma silver's gone, your friend's freaking out. What do you see? This time, this time, you see a large submerged log has just drifted downstream, mainly under the waterline, thumped into your canoe, tipped you over. How do you feel now? And what's the difference? What's the difference? The difference is you weren't targeted personally. And the thing to realize is that most of the people who bump into us in this life are like logs. <laughs> <laughs> they were launched upstream due to 10,000 causes. We're bit players in their drama. Doesn't mean you're not in the river. And the takeaway, of course, is to watch out for logs and um, maybe choose a different river next time, right? And that right. applies to other people as well sometimes. Uh, but we don't have to take it all so personally. And there's tons of evidence that so much of our add-on suffering, I mean, there are the conditions of life the Buddha described as first starts, first arrows, you know, just inherent, unavoidable physical and emotional pain. But then we add the second, third, fourth, fifth darts that we throw ourselves, including by taking it oh so personally, right? Um, <clears throat> how dare you? We get offended. We get affronted. We feel attacked, uh, pulls up old experiences that we took personally previously, including in our childhood. And so the alternative like I'm saying, is to recognize real issues, recognize dangers, recognize logs, be thoughtful when you're in the river um, of life, but to realize that uh, all that happens is mostly outside of your hands and even more broadly, the so-called one to whom it happens is a complicated collection of flotsam and jetsam in the river of time that is loosely associated with your name and social security number for <laughs> four score years and 10 or even longer if you're fortunate, <laughs> right? And so right, it's, yeah. it's more diffuse. And what's great and weird and interesting uh, is that the best way, one of the best ways to increasingly take life less personally is to treat yourself better as a person. Mm. Ah. As you be loyal to yourself, as you focus on your own needs, as you repeatedly take in the good, um, old so-called narcissistic injuries fade. We become less and less hungry for social supplies outside us from others. Uh, we become stronger and more resilient with the inevitable bumps and bruises. Many people disappoint. Many people are just casually callous or cruel. They, just, they almost don't even realize it. or. They're just irritated and they lash out and zing, they zing us. You know, it's gonna happen. But by treating ourselves well as persons without presuming a congealed brick-like entity, I, inside, 
-hmm. by treating ourselves well as persons, we become more able and we have more shock absorbers. We grow shock absorbers inside. So when the logs of life hit us, we're less rattled by it, less affected mm -hmm. by it. And I think a lot of people in the spiritual world make the mistake of fearing the internalization of experiences of being loved and worthy mm -hmm. and good because, oh, then I'm going to become egoic. But actually, the more we internalize those good experiences, the less egoic and conceited and arrogant and dominating we become. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the more you actually swallow the food you're chewing, <laughs> so it becomes a part of you, that's how you ease your hunger. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about fullness uh, for some reason when you were talking about that. If you are in touch with your own fullness, it is yeah. so much easier to let these things go like water That's off right. a duck's back. You know, yeah. it, it, uh, it, for me, it, it really is directly related to the strength of my own practice and steadiness of my own practice, whether these little yeah. things that happen to all of us day by day, whether they, whether they, you know, make a dent <laughs> and, and, uh, and cause me to, uh, you know, respond in kind of a knee jerk uh, fashion. Yeah. Um, I did, I did want you to continue with the, that chapter. You also give the story about driving your wife with your wife, okay. which I, I thought this was great. I mean, it, it really is, is sort of the same principle, but yeah. it, it personalizes it. So would you mind sharing that story with our listeners? Yeah. And I'll try to be succinct too. So that I, Forget the chapter title that's in. It might be "Give Them What They Want." I forget. The no, title. it's it's uh, it's uh, uh, take it less personally. Yeah. Okay. Also in the same chapter. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so this gets to actually a very broad principle. Again, how do we make our relationships? Other people do what they do. How do we interpret what they do? What meaning do we give it? And can we claim the right to ourselves? to sort of sort out what's happening around us into different piles, as it were. So quick, uh, the story is essentially, uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. I started driving at 16. I've driven a lot of miles, freeway miles, you know, good safety record. My wife, uh, more of an anxious person, hasn't driven a lot, doesn't have very good depth perception, you know. Uh, she's sort of not used to stuff. So we would have experiences where we'd be rolling along the freeway, of course, in the fast lane, but I'd be farther back uh, from the car in front of me than 80, 90% of the cars in the fast lane for sure, just rolling along, driving carefully. I'd look over to see her. She'd have white knuckles on the handle of the door and her right, right. foot would just be twitching like she's pushing an imaginary brake pedal you know, in the passenger seat. Like, well, And then she'd flare at me like, Rick, slow down. Why are you in the fast lane? And I'm, whoa, wait a minute here. And now it hit my early, you know, teenage experiences or younger of my parents being loving but fairly critical people. Like, whoa, wait a minute. And I started sorting out what she was saying into these three piles that I call moral fault, skillful correction, and gracious gift. This is one of the most useful things I've kind of learned along the way. Because when people critique us, when they have a complaint or a desire or, you know, their issue, it often comes with a lot of topspin, you know, a lot of crap, <laughs> you know, like Ugh. they're sort of shaming us. You're bad. Right. right and man, right. we're very vulnerable to feeling bad. And then we get defensive about it, take sure. it personally, then you're in trouble. So she said she would communicate in a fairly normal, which means messy way, <laughs> you know, and I go like, huh, is this a moral fault? Am I being reckless here? Do I deserve the wince of healthy remorse? Actually, no, I'm not being reckless at all. 
Okay. Is is there a skillful correction? You know, should I just back up a car length or two from the person in front of me? Well, actually, no, I'm far back from them. I'm actually kind of a cautious driver in my way. It's not about unskillfulness. And this is, by the way, a very important point. Oftentimes people will be mad at us and the real takeaway is how could I be more skillful from now on? Rather than argue about the past, boom, what can I figure out? How can I zero out whatever's legitimate in their complaint from now on? Not out of being their doormat or punching bag, but rather as a strong move that's really good for me and will eventually put me, in other words, you, on the high moral ground to start asking for what you want from other people. That's very, very powerful, very powerful to shift into, to focus on what can you implement going forward? Not because you're doing it out of guilt or shame. It's not a moral issue, but yeah, okay, you could be a little more skillful next time around. Or in my wife's case, number three, it, since it's not a matter of skillfulness or a moral fault, why not just give it to her? Why not just make the gracious gift? No big deal. You know, you like chocolate. I like vanilla. <laughs> okay, I'll get chocolate. You know, mm -hmm. if I slow down, if I get out of that fast lane, she's going to be infinitely happier. And we're going to get there five minutes later. Who cares? See what I mean? So that yeah. for me is really, really helpful. And, and um, at the heart of it, again, it's supporting yourself as a person that you have the right to sort out what, how you regard something. Even if they're yelling at you for being a bad person, you can just think to yourself, I'm not a bad person at all, but you know, I'm gonna move over a lane or two. If only it gets you out of my hair. <laughs> 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 Shh, yes. Don't tell my wife I said that. <laughs> okay, we won't send her the link to this podcast. <laughs> No, she knows all my secrets, or at least most of them. Okay. Well, in part five of your book, uh, it's titled Speak Wisely. Yeah. And you have so many, so much wisdom in these chapters that are in this section. Um, there's many Buddhist principles that you go through about, about speech, but a lot of it to me is to be able to slow down before right. we speak. And really to reflect on what is useful to say and what yeah. really is not useful yeah. to say. Yeah. So we talk a lot about meditation on this program. I know you are, you meditate. I know you teach meditation. How do you see meditation helping us to make great relationships? Wow, that's, no one's ever asked me that, to your credit. That's a great question, really. Um, Gosh, in so many ways. Well, you know, so many benefits of meditation. Um, you know, meditation tends to increase the sense of trait, calm, you know, as a trait. So your resting state becomes calmer and you can recover to calm faster. That's another key dimension of mental health. How rapidly can people recover to a positive baseline when they're agitated or rattled or, or frozen? It's the speed of recovery. That really is key. It's understandable. If someone starts yelling at you, you're sort of like, Whoa, what? But how long does it take? Seconds. How many seconds does it take to restabilize in a, in a calm, centered place where you're starting to figure out what you're going to do? All right, so meditation helps with all those things. Also, it helps us uh, be more comfortable in our own skin. I mean, we learn about ourselves. We come home to ourselves. We, be, we include all of ourselves, the whole village, the whole zoo of the psyche, <laughs> you know, all together, all the characters there. And, right. and we be, so we become more at ease. We're 
harder to trigger then. You know, we're kind of more accepting of all of ourselves and the ecosystem, if in a sense, of the mind altogether becomes kind of more harmonious and balanced because it's more included. And we become more knowledgeable about others. You know, as we deepen our own empathy and effect for ourselves, we can become more understanding of why others might be bothered by something. So it helps yeah. in those ways. Um, maybe a last one that I find um, really helpful and People meditate for different reasons and different levels of reason, but a reason you and I share is increasingly you start, a, I think of meditation as homecoming, mm-hmm. and you start having a more and more grounded, embodied, available sense of the ultimate home of all, you know, the ground of grounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more you kind of rest there in that home, uh, the harder it is to drive you into a kind of inner homelessness in which you're alienated from yourself, you're rattled. And, and the more you can rest in that home, um, the better you'll feel in your relationships, including difficult ones. And other people tend to treat you better. They tend to be less reactive when you're in that relatively stable place, which includes an inherent lovingness. You know, you don't have to agree with people uh, while still resting in an inherent um, warm-heartedness and open-heartedness as a kind of, I think of it as a Wi-Fi base station through which other people move, you know, uh, right? <laughs> right yeah. yeah, and you may choose, you know, I like you resize your relationship. There are people that I've, you know, shrunk the size of my relationship with, or I realize, you know, we'll, we'll never do a, a thing again, of a, you know, like we'll never do business again, or I'll never loan you money again, or, you know, I'll never trust you again in any significant way, but I wish you well. I'm not going to let poison, I'm not going to let hate and rancor poison my heart. Yeah. I can realize, frankly, politically, that you're crazy (laughs) in some ways. (laughs) I like believe you're totally deluded, frankly. You're in a cult. And I can recognize that. And recognizing that is, is being discerning. I mean, we have to be discerning and we have to have values. There's no escape for discern from discernment or values. The question is, are we discerning reality? Excuse me, the earth is round, it's not flat. You know, excuse me, the coronavirus, COVID-19 has killed over a million Americans and a large fraction of those deaths were completely preventable. And these are just facts, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so that said, you know, I have relatives, uh, you know, that I really, I like a lot immensely. I just know that a number of the things they believe to be true are just flat out not true. And mm-hmm. I'm not gonna argue with them about it, so. Mm-hmm. But I still rest in a kind of warm-hearted lovingness with them. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, well, that was usefully controversial. What I just said there. Oh, I think so. Yes, definitely. I loved the idea of meditation as homecoming, which yeah. kind of made me think back of what I was saying earlier about that fullness when we rest in our own wholeness. Yeah. I think it's um, <clears throat> it 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 makes. Um, Maybe it's like a shock absorber when we bump into other things in the world then it doesn't uh, doesn't rattle us you know quite so much. Yeah. Well, here we are almost at the end of our time together. What words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? Well, this has been wonderful, Laurel, and thanks for letting me kind of rattle on here. Um, well, I guess you can feel my enthusiasm, you know, that we have power. We're not dead in the water. You know, there's a great teaching from Viktor Frankl, Holocaust survivor, founder of logotherapy, uh, bless his memory. 
you know, who talked about in his famous quotation in the concentration camps, to, to paraphrase it, there were always some people who retained that most fundamental of, of human freedoms to choose their response to the circumstances they were in, even in what is the most hellish possible kind of situation. Um, and I just think it's really, it's, it's important to claim that and it's hopeful, it's happy, it's wonderful for us to, to realize, hey, there are things I can do. And often what they have to do is a shift in our own internal perspective. Right. Um, you know, let's say you're a parent with adult kids, like we have adult kids, and, and part of what you realize is that you have limited influence over them. And you know, what, what you can do is rest in a lovingness and openness that's inherent in your own being. That's not contingent, not dependent or conditional on what they do. That's really, really good. So that's, I guess that would be one thing. And um, then the other thing I could just add is that uh, when we look out at the world altogether, right, um, I am, I've helped to found what's called the Global Compassion Coalition. People mm -hmm. should check it out, globalcompassioncoalition.org and um, join the coalition. It's free. Um, you'll be in very good company. Take a look at some of the people that are already there. I hope you'll have joined or will join soon. Laurel is one of our distinguished founding supporters. And um, it speaks to the broader point that what worked in our hunter-gatherer bands to appreciate remarkably that the human species, people like you and me, Laurel, have been walking this planet for 300,000 years, literally. And our hominid tool manufacturing ancestors for another 2 million plus years before that while manufacturing stone tools pretty smart creatures, right? And so most of that time, certainly the last 300,000 years, 97% of it, we live together on the basis of compassion and justice. Truly, that's science. Then along came agriculture and large populations and large surpluses and concentrations of wealth and power that have led uh, life to be pretty much like Game of Thrones for most people for the last 10,000 years, 3% of the time that humanity has walked the earth. And it's just wild to appreciate that our nature is to live together on the basis of compassion and justice, caring and sharing, it's called. Mm -hmm. And to me, what enabled our ancestors to do that is they came together at the scale of 40 or 50 people in a band who lived together most of their lives. They came together. The question now is how do we scale up what works? Yes. For 97% of the time we've walked this earth, how do we scale that up to all 8 billion members of the one single whole human tribe? And that's what that Global Compassion Coalition is about. It's about creating a frame in which we can scale up so that humanity can come together to make sure that no child ever, ever, ever dies of hunger instead of the 10,000 a day that do. Mm -hmm. We can come together at a scale that um, starts uh, removing corrupt money from our political systems. We can come together at a scale to make sure that all children are educated, not just some boys. Mm -hmm. right? Come together at a scale that can uh, halt uh, carbon emissions that are driving us into greater and greater catastrophe, even beyond the catastrophes we're just beginning to see. Right? Mm -hmm. We can come together to change that. But we will have to come together at a scale uh, that is big enough to be strong enough 
to drive those systemic changes. And that's what that Global Compassion Coalition envisions. Wow. And you can be a part of it, whoever you Very are. Very inspiring. You have a belly button, you can be a member. <laughs> that's great, Rick. Well, I know that you have a hard stop and I wanna honor that. So thank you so much, Rick Hansen. I am gonna continue on with the podcast just a few more minutes to make some announcements, but I'm gonna go ahead and let you go. Again, right, thank, uh, you. thank you for your book. Um, making great relationships, uh, highly recommended, and, uh, and just for your presence here on the podcast. Mm, it's really been a lovely, lovely conversation. It's always a pleasure, Laurel. You and I sync up really well with each other. It's great. Mm. All, All right. right, good. You take care and take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. All right. Bye-bye. Right. Right. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show, and my guest today was Rick Hansen. Rick is a psychologist, meditation teacher, and author of the book we've been discussing today, Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. You can find out more about Rick and his programs and his other books at his website, rickhansen.net. And Hanson, again, is with an O, H-A-N-S-O-N, rickhanson.net. You can also follow him on Facebook and Instagram at rickhansonphd. And once again, he has a podcast with his son, Forrest Hanson, called Being Well. We will have his links on our website, theyogahour.com. For listeners, we hope you will join us for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. CSE offers daily online meditation in the mornings at 6.30 Pacific time, in the afternoons at 4 p.m. and on Monday evenings at 7.30 p.m. Again, all those times are Pacific time. There's also a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word meaning a gathering of truth seekers that happens at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. For those in the San Francisco Bay Area, I, Dr. Laurel Trujillo, will be offering an Ayurveda self-care retreat day this coming Saturday, March 18th, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. in San Jose at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, which is offered in person only. We'll be learning about the daily and seasonal changes that happen and how we can keep ourselves in balance We'll also be exploring the six tastes from an Ayurvedic perspective. You can register through that website, csecenter.org. Just click on the calendar page and you'll find it on, again, Saturday, March 18th. I hope you can join me. There's another podcast that might be of interest to listeners of this program, which is called Kriya Yoga Today Podcast with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, which includes presentations from classes and talks that Yogacharya has given. You can access this through the CSE website at csecenter.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about all these events and more at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment website, csecenter.org. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, Meditation Center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing 
and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.